It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? I met my next guest in the Adoptive Voices writing group created by Sarah Easterly, who was a guest on this podcast, episode six of season one. Her name is Jenny with a Z, and she spells her name Z-H-E-N-E. She is a Korean international transracial adoptee. When I first heard her share her words on a Monday evening with the other adoptee writers, I felt like I was in a theater listening to a multi-award-winning play. When I later learned that she has written a stellar play, loosely based upon her adoption story called Black Box, an adoption story, choreal poem. I wasn't the least bit surprised by that impressive fact. Before the pandemic, Jenny was a massage therapist, a published playwright, wedding official, event planner, and cat mom. She loved traveling and being a foodie. Jenny, Robert, her husband, and their son, Jordan, and his wife, Skylar, traveled to South Korea. Allow me to introduce you to someone who co-hosts a fantastic podcast with Amy, Amy with an A, entitled Sick and Tired 2.0, as well as a co-owner of the production company Sassy Bitches Productions. I like that name. In this episode, she is transparent and funny as she informs us about a part of her adoption journey. Well, Jenny, with a Z, I'm so glad to be able to have this conversation with you. How are you holding up during this time of the pandemic? I tell everybody my pat answer is as well as anybody else <laughs> during this time. <laughs> yeah, it's real tricky through here. Yeah. 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 And I'm typically somebody that enjoyed being out in the public, very extroverted, and I've become very introverted and just kind of stay in my house now. And I've noticed that my trust levels of people have really changed during this time. So, so yeah, so I'm kind of taking this time to kind of nurture myself. <laughs> yeah. Let's just jump right in there. I know you're a transracial adoptee. Wherever yes. you want to start and however much you want to share would be good. So I'm a transracial adoptee. So as much as the story that I know, I've been told different things from different sources. So I will piece together what I know. The facts that I do know, I was adopted from Korea. So supposedly I was abandoned when I was two years old. If what the information they told me is true, I was supposedly found with a note on me with my Korean name. Um, I don't go by that Korean name because my parents, when they adopted me, changed my name. And supposedly I had a birth date on there. So if the, if all that is true, then that means that I was banned in two days after my second birthday, which would be 
at the end of January and I was abandoned in the middle of the night. So it would have been winter in the middle of the night. So you just wonder with that, were they trying to get rid of me or were they trying to also help me? Because supposedly I was abandoned at a uh, farm. And so you wonder if they knew that family. We did try to uh, locate this family when we did go to Korea. That was a dead end, but um, because we wonder if they left me with this family because they knew that this family would take care of me. There's also issues with, it was illegal at that time to abandon a child. So if they could trace back to you, then you could you could be put in jail for that. It was also illegal if you were a single unwed mother to pregnant. So I was never registered in Korea. So as far as Korea is concerned, I did not exist. So that's, that's kind of a tough uh, thing to wrestle with that you did not exist in a place that you were supposedly from. So Right. So anyway, so then I was adopted. I was I was in a foster home in Korea. So we know the, that through the records and I was adopted through Holt Adoption Agency. And um, I was adopted to Iowa, which is in the middle of the United States, to a very small town in Iowa, um, where I was the only non-white person for a long, long, long time. So it wasn't like a whole Asian family moved in. It was me. And a lot of people, you know, with that, there was a lot of racism and a lot of just things that people assumed about me just seeing me they would assume that I was uh, you know just off the boat Asian that I would not speak English things like that so I grew up feeling like I was white because I was I was raised by white people I was around all white people in school and as far as I was concerned I was white Mm because my culture was that but then little things would happen like people would just say things and just automatically assume that it was their right to ask these things. Like they would ask my mom when we'd be in the grocery store, what is she? They wouldn't, it wasn't like, where is she from? It Mm -hmm. was like, it was like, I wasn't even a person to them. And they were like, what is she? And things like that. And I remember my mom teaching me very early on to approach it with humor, but it does, it does great on you after a while, these little microaggressions that happen and you, you kind of laugh them off and you become the one that makes the jokes first about them because then that way they can't make fun of you if you're doing it first. Right. So, and then later on you start realizing it's not so funny anymore. Right? Right. It kind of is actually hurtful. So at what, so, yeah, at what so, age would you say you realize that this is not funny? I'm sure that I probably realized it when I was in my biggest jokey phase, which was as a teenager in early college years. But at that point, I wasn't really delving deep into the reality of what was happening. I was still keeping it very surface and very funny. But in reality, it was it was doing a lot of damage to me. And I wrote a, a piece about this. And it's part of a play that I've written about my adoption journey. But one of it was I went from being this kind of pariah, you know, at the time when everybody's trying to start dating as a teenager, right? And I was this pariah, nobody wanted to date me. And a lot of it was attributed to the fact that I was Asian and they didn't they didn't want to date an Asian girl, right? And then all of a sudden I went to college and then the, uh, the reverse happened. All of a sudden I came upon people that have what we call yellow fever, which is, you know, you have an obsession with Asians. And so that was also almost just as bad or worse. Cause all of a sudden it was like, I, nobody wanted me. Then all of a sudden people wanted me for this other reason that I didn't understand because I'm not, as far as I was concerned, I wasn't Asian. You know what I mean? I mean, I knew biologically I was Asian, but I wasn't that kind of Asian that they were looking for or a sexual fetish. It's just as damaging to you. Right, right. To you. Yeah. Yeah. 
when it really culminated was after I'd had my son. I've been married for many years. And so probably when I realized how much it really affected me was, and I'm going to start crying. I always cry when I tell the story. When I was giving birth to my son and everything about the pregnancy had been kind of tough. The pregnancy itself was, was fine. I was uh, physically, I was, it it was like I was built to, to be pregnant because it was like, I didn't, I didn't really have morning sickness. I didn't have any of that stuff. And my parents had decided to kick me out of the house. That was what was tough. But when I was physically giving birth to him, I remember a thought going through my head of, I hope that he looks white when he comes out because because his biological father was white Mm -hmm. and I shouldn't I shouldn't be thinking that kind of thought Mm. I should be thinking I want a healthy baby right but instead I was thinking I hope he looks more white so he doesn't have to go through what I did Mm. yeah so yeah he was a beautiful baby. And in fact, the, the doctors and nurse were like, oh my gosh, I've never seen a baby come out with like a perfectly shaped head like this because usually they were very cone-headed. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in the birth canal very long. It was like one of those easy births. My water broke and it was like, I wasn't in labor for a real long time. It was the fact that I had that thought was probably kind of the start of like the reality of what I was kind of really going through. Yeah. Dealing with, with the faces. I um, mm, I'm sorry yeah, that sorry. how you have been impacted to the degree that you would have that thought is, is what yeah. I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, and so for the most part, I was always the one that would like I said, like I would joke about it. I would make the mm-hmm. jokes about like where I even live now. So where I grew up is a very small town, but I live in the second largest city in Iowa. So it's not like a huge city, right? But still, our population here is is mostly white. (laughs) And so there aren't a lot of Asians in general here because our ethnic population demographic is of the whole population. And that's all the different that are not white is like 10% of the population. So that includes everybody, right? So, Mm -hmm. and so the Asian population is, is very small. And so I would make jokes because I would always be very aware that when I would walk into a room of a big gathering, I would probably be the only Asian in there a lot of times. And so if there would be another Asian in there, I would make the joke about like, oh my gosh, both of us are out today. Who's running the store? You know, we would, I would make jokes like that. Right. Yeah. And I realized later, I was like, why am I making these jokes? Is it just because I'm just worried that like somebody else makes it, then, then I'm not in on the joke or that, you know what I mean? So every once in a while, just like weird racist things would come up. Like people would just make weird comments to me, like drunk people in bars and things like, and you'd just be like, what, what did that, what did that mean? And then, I mean, I would tell people that I was adopted, but I think part of it is when I was adopted in the seventies, you kind of forgot about your, where you came from. You didn't, you didn't work hard to like cultivate that culture and keep it in. I came here speaking Korean because I was two and a half years old and but nobody kept that up. So I quickly figured out how to speak English because, you know, nobody else is speaking Korean. And so I have to, I just, so I've lost that, you know, I've tried to learn it again over the years, but it's, it's really tough. So you just kind of assimilate it. So I don't know if that's 
part of it is because I was always given this message of like, we don't talk about your adoption. I mean, you can tell people you're adopted because we would. Because that was one of the things is I remember my mom was raised in a time when a lot of people did not tell people they were adopted and then they'd find out later as adults they were adopted and it would like destroy their world. And we've heard with adoptee voices, some stories such as that. But I remember somebody coming up to my mom and asking her, are you going to tell her she's adopted? And my mom was like, I think she'll figure it out because <laughs> she doesn't really look like her. <laughs> but my mom was serious that she was very open about telling us, this is just how she's always kind of been. She's very matter of fact. She's a librarian. My parents are both teachers. Everything was very much like we, t- we talk about everything. Education is very important. Using correct terminology is very important. So like even like sexuality, we didn't give pet names to genitalia. We talked about it as it was, right? So same thing with my adoption. I, I was able to tell people my adoption. My mom always made sure I did not tell them what my Korean name was, which is interesting because that kind of gave me a little shame about that. Mm. Um, to this day, I have a hard time telling people my Korean name. But yeah. when I do hear people say it and say it correctly, there is a part of me that goes, oh, my gosh. I don't know if you've seen The Mandalorian. They call him Baby Yoda, but he's not a Baby Yoda. When they reveal his name, which is Grogu, and the Mandalorian starts calling him that, and he goes, Grogu, and he goes, huh? And that's what I always feel like. I feel like little Grogu and somebody's actually saying my name. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, oh, why is somebody saying my name? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but where it kind of all culminated for me, and my husband would always say, like, hey, do you want to ever, you know, search for your adoption, your parents, and blah, blah, blah. And I'd always be like, nope, nope, I'm good. I'm good. Everybody knows I'm adopted. It's no big deal. But the thing where it culminated for me was when my son was getting to the point that he was filling out college applications. And I remember one time looking at him and saying, what box do you check? Hmm. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he just kind of goes Asian, duh. And I was like, really? I said, you can check any box and you are checking Asian and you're really proud of it. And he goes, yeah, he goes, and this is what he said to me. This is what changed it for me. So he goes, I kind of had a cool Asian mom. Hmm. Mm. And then I realized right then, how come he is proud of being Asian and I'm not? Mm. And I realized it was because he had an example of an Asian person in his face all the time. Right. I had never really seen any of that. A little bit I saw, I can remember watching the Olympics with my mom and being excited when there'd be Olympic, you know, ice skaters would be Asian or gymnasts or you know, we had, you know, Connie Chung when I grew up. And so people would call me Connie Chung. And then later on, it was Margaret Cho. And people would call me Margaret Cho. And I didn't really have a lot of role models or examples. And so, I mean, until like recently, all of a sudden, there's this huge Korean wave coming in of like, you know, K-pop and Korean food is now thing. And movies are now sweeping that are Korean. And, and I'm like, wow, I'm like 50 years old. And it's just starting. Right, so, right. Yes. Yeah, You're so, making I mean, me you know. think about when I was growing up, I was adopted in the same race, black family. Mm-hmm. But I remember okay. when I was young, my mother would say, come in here real quick. There's a black person on TV, you know, because yeah. that was so uncommon. Yeah. At that time, it was just here and there, black a black show or a black yeah. uh, person on there. And it was a big deal. And so I'm thinking you you didn't even have it in your family. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just not seeing representation of any kind right. like that. So then from that moment on, I kind of dove headfirst into being super Korean. Like I went from being like, don't talk about me being Korean to being super Korean. Mm-hmm. And so now people that meet me in this chapter of my life probably think like, okay, yeah, we get it. You like Korean. You like Korean food. You like to go to Korea. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) Yeah. So you did get a chance to go to East Asia. You got to go to Korea. You want to tell me about that? How was that experience? So we got to go three times before the world shut down. (laughs) (laughs) Because, like, we, we, you know, we'd love to go back. But the first time was probably probably the most stressful time because you just we didn't know what to expect but then after the first time you're like okay I I know how to deal with this now like I said I had really leaned into my adoption and being Korean and trying to find out any information I could so Holt holds these picnics in different areas where there's a group of adoptees I signed up for this Holt picnic and then not realizing that it was actually something that like parents that had adopted kids usually go to so it's something that their kids can can kind of learn to meet each other and my parents had never done that stuff because I knew that there was like camps and and other things but we just never went to them but I'm not sure that even if my parents had done that when I was a kid that I would have been open I would have probably been like okay you're trying to shove me together with this other Korean adoptee I don't care because I remember like when there'd be a foreign exchange student at school and if they were from some Asian country they would automatically think we should all be friends and we're like, okay, so you're putting us together because we're two Asian people. Thanks. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I had gone to this Korean adoptee picnic. And of course, I was like the oldest adoptee there by a lot. But I had met people there that had gone over to Korea and they were like, oh my gosh, you should go. So then I had that kind of started me contacting Holt, the adoption agency, to see if I could get my records. And so then I got this runaround because, because I was adopted in kind of the end of the first wave I, I consider myself first wave but i'm somewhat at the start of the second wave too so they hadn't kept records and so they do this like they'll say so i would contact holt in korea and holt in korea would say no contact holt in i think seattle or portland i can't remember and then they'd say no contact and then they would say contact holt in korea and then they'd be like no contact holt in america and then you know this back and forth and finally somebody sent me some records And this is what was interesting. This is how they worded it. Because in their mind, they were thinking, oh, gosh, this is going to be a failure. But they were like, just so you know, we didn't find a lot of records on you, but this is what we did find out. And so my mom, my adopted mom, had had always kept all my adoption papers, any papers she had gotten. She kept that. And I have a very detailed scrapbook of that. But this filled in some of the stuff because it said that this is when they told me that I had been abandoned with this note. This is how they knew my name. And the GPS coordinates of like where I had been abandoned, supposedly. Okay, so in the time of day and night and the family that lived there, so their name. Mm. And so they're like, so I'm sorry we couldn't find your family, but this is the information that we do know. And I said, you know, to an adoptee, you know, just getting any piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. is a gift. Because sure they were like, we're... Because, yeah, because when they sent the email, they're like, we're sorry, but this is all we could find. And I'm sorry, this isn't going to be. And I was just like, no, you don't understand. This is you know. So then we had found this website to book airfare to go to Korea. And we had we had already had it all planned out. There was going to be me, my husband and my son. Okay, and we were going to go there. We were planning on meeting with Holt in Korea and blah, blah, blah. 
I had posted on Facebook that we had booked our trip to Korea. And then a friend of mine was like, oh my gosh, you have to watch this show on Netflix called Twinsters. And Twinsters is about these twins from Korea that had been adopted out to two different countries and did not know about the other one because as far in their records, they were never told that there was a twin. And they were actually adopted through two different adoption agencies for that reason. So that way they would never find each other. Different people that knew them had seen either some videos or Facebook stuff. And they were like, this person looks just like you in this other post. And they're like, no. So they met each other. And one was like, I want to say France. And the other one was the United States. So this documentary uh, showcases them. And then one of the things they talked about in there was going to this international Korean adoptee gathering in Korea that has happened that happens every three years and it was called ICA International Korean Adoptees Association and it's 500 Korean adoptees from all over the world and they gather together in Seoul there's a week-long thing they have different workshops and different things to do tours of Korea blah blah blah. and of course it was two weeks prior to when we were supposed to be there so I contacted my husband and I said oh my gosh I just found out about this thing called ICA and this is the year they do it. They only do it every three years. So because of that movie, that year was 2016. ICA had like probably the biggest amount of people that came because of that movie, because people had heard about it in that movie. But anyway, so my husband said, I don't care how much it costs. We got to change all of our stuff and go during that time. And mm. I was like, and this is, you got to understand, my husband is a very frugal penny <laughs> I mean, he wasn't going to like, if it was going to be like an astronomical number, he probably wasn't going to do it, but we did. So we switched all our stuff. We went during that time. And every time we've gone to Korea, it's life-changing. I always say it's kind of, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Korea. I love it. I miss it. But there's also a point where it's just too much and I have a complete breakdown and I want to go home. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's just one of those things every single time it happens and you've been three like, times three times so we went in 2016 for ICA with our son because we thought if we do manage to find family he <sighs> would also be part of that family and then my husband and I went eight months later in 2017 and so that was kind of interesting because we had had a different president and then we also got to be there during when they were having their elections and how they do their elections. was kind of interesting. And then we went again in 2019 for, again, the ICA gathering. And then our son at that time, the girl he was dating was also a Korean adoptee. So she went and her family went and they had never been to Korea. And then he proposed to her there. And then, wow, yeah. And then they were supposed to get married the next September, but then the world fell apart in 2020, right? Right, so. <laughs> right. Wow. so they did get married in 2021. So every time we've gone, it's been an emotional thing. I don't suggest everybody go during ICA. It's a lot. They need to have therapists there <laughs> because you're dealing with a lot. You're dealing with other people that are like you. You're in a country that you don't belong to, but you're supposedly tied to. It's it's a lot. Like here in America you're too Asian to be considered American, right? But then in Korea, you're very aware that they know you're not Korean. Mm. 
here you're like, I don't fit in. I'm, I'm not Korean enough to be in Korea and I'm not, uh, I'm too Korean to be American. So it's, it's really, you're kind of in this like no man's land. That's why I wrote that piece where I said like, it's like the DMZ where it's, nobody's allowed to be part of this. It's mm-hmm. Beautiful and dangerous at the same time. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. I have so many questions that, for you uh, that I want to ask you. Why don't I start with this next question? I met you in the Adoptee Voices writing group. And to hear your words when I first heard you read, like I was just blown completely away. I'm like, because she's amazing. So uh, when did you first recognize your talent as a writer? I've been writing all my life. So again, my mom was a librarian. So I grew up reading everything and anything I could get my hands on because I grew up in a library. And we didn't watch a lot of TV. And so that was kind of my escape. I loved words. I loved reading words. I loved how, you know, so I've always loved that. And then I also had a big introduction into theater as a young person. My mom made sure that I went to a lot of theater. So I, but I've always kind of written because, you know, like when you would be in elementary, they'd be like, oh, you know, write about blah, blah, blah. Like, so when you get to a certain point in your in your education they'll be like it has to be so many words and people would be like oh it's got to be at least a blah blah word story they would actually put a cap on me because they would say jenny you can't write more than four pages or something like that because (laughs) because they would read them aloud right and so sometimes my stories would get like really involved and so they'd be like your stories are really good, but we can't have you write like 20 pages, right? So mm-hmm. we have to have you very limited. So I was always that kid. Okay? okay, so so I've been writing pretty much all my life. So we didn't do, you're the most blah, blah, blah in your yearbooks. You're going to be the most blah, blah, blah when you grow up, or you're the most likely to succeed, or we didn't do those. But I can remember somebody doing a speech once, and they said, most likely to have a... Uh, novel written and they said that that would probably be me but haven't done that but I have I am published I am published so Mm. I'm a published playwright so and I've had several poems and spoken word essays published in different publications so um, yeah yeah I hope you'll share at least one of your pieces with the audience Yeah. yeah when whenever you're ready I also know that you're a podcaster and I've had an opportunity to listen to about three episodes, and you are so good. How did you get started with that? I was involved in a couple other podcasts many, many years ago before it was kind of, before podcasting became as popular as it has. And the only thing I can remember as a rule is people saying, don't talk over each other because we can't, it's harder to edit that. Now people can edit that if you do talk over each other. But so I had done podcasts before, and I even had tried to start one with a group that was called the Coffee Clatch. But then at that point, I don't have the tech background to be able, at least that time I didn't, I didn't have the tech background to be able to engineer it and edit. And I didn't want to do all that. I knew that <laughs> after editing things in college, because I had tried to be a broadcaster and I was like, nope, that's mostly editing. And I don't like that. Several years had passed. And then during the pandemic, um, well, so I had met my podcast partner many years prior, and we had kind of bonded over our shared health issues, which is what our show is about. 
so our podcast is called Sick and Tired. It's now called Sick and Tired 2.0 because we have our own production company, but it's about our health issues. And then what we hope to tell people is that like you can be an advocate. And sometimes you have to be an advocate of your own health care because sometimes you know your body better than anybody. So she and I had bonded over something, a shared issue that we had. She was having this issue and I kept saying, I'm pretty sure it's this. And it took me like years before somebody diagnosed it. And so I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep you from having to go through like years of just pain and suffering. And I'm going to have you tell your doctors, you think this is what it is and you need to be tested for that. And it ended up being that that's what it was. And so beginning of the pandemic when everything was Zoom and even when you were meeting with your friends and be on Zoom, I remember we would say several times, we need to do a podcast about our, about this stuff and see if like anybody would listen to it. But at that time we couldn't be in the same space and we didn't know anything about doing this podcast. And then suddenly this uh, other group had decided to, in, in our, in our area had decided to start their own podcast network and they just wanted different people to come in and do podcasts and that they would share any money that was, that they were able to get from sponsorships that we would, we would split it. We went and, started our podcast with them. And so that's kind of how we got started with that. Such an important topic. Yes. I remember one of the episodes I was like, yeah, that's, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you Mm -hmm. do need to like stand up for yourself with Mm -hmm. these healthcare professionals. (laughs) Yeah. And I've had, and I've had people that don't necessarily have exactly the same. And that's the thing. It's not necessarily, you have exactly the same issues that we have, but she said, if I hadn't listened to your podcast, I probably wouldn't have advocated for myself because I wouldn't, I, I, I you know, I believe the doctors. And right. so I probably would have let an issue go longer than I needed to. And she goes, and because I told them, no, I think something's really going on and we need to really research it. They found that she did have an issue and that they had gotten it in the stages that it was, it was, it was kind of nothing. Uh, I mean, it was a big deal, but it wasn't, it wasn't as big deal as it could have turned into. And so she's like, if I hadn't listened to you, she goes, I probably would have let it go for years. And then it would have been a big problem. She goes, I thank you for that. And I was like, oh my goodness, thank you for reaching out and telling me that. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's important. Okay. So let's talk about how being a part of the adoption community has been rewarding for you. I have met so many adoptees through social media that I would never have met because they're all over the world. Right. But because of like, there's a lot of Korean adoptee groups that I'm involved with that are on Facebook, we found each other. Right. And then you kind of, you find out, Oh my goodness, there's other people that understand my story and I don't have to explain my story from Mm -hmm. top to bottom to them. And they totally get it. Or they don't even have to hear your story. They already know. And I'm not joking. There are specialized groups within the adoptee community there's one about how it's called um, I think they've called it now twisted beauty or something like that but it has to do with what are good skincare products for Asian skin or what what are ways that you put makeup on because you know growing up I remember looking in the magazines and they would have this is this is how you do eyeshadow on this color eye and this shape of eye and this this is how you do eyeshadow for this 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 and then they'd have one for like Asian like every Asian person, I guess, only has this, you only do eye makeup this way, right? Mm -hmm. And so I can remember thinking, well, my eyelids don't look like that because I I don't have the mono lid. I actually have a double. Um, I do have a little bit. I kind of have a mix of both 
the monolid and uh, and you can see some of my eyelids so mine didn't look like what the typical asian eyelids should look like so i couldn't even do my eye makeup like that so it's interesting that like they realize that so they created a specialty group of just people that are like dealing with being a Korean adoptee right. where you, you can't get products and what, what are you, what are you guys using? What are you guys doing? How, how are you dealing with like, my hair's curly, your hair is straight. How do you, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. So, and then they even have ones of like, if you're a parent who is raising children, they have adoptee groups for that. So it's been very cathartic for me to have different groups that I can be part of. And it did actually help when we went over to Korea, when we went to to Aika, I had already kind of met, quote unquote, these people online. Mm. So then I rec—I recognized them when I saw them. And in right. fact, some of them, some of them would come up to me sometimes and be like, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm kind of meeting a celebrity. I'm meeting you in person. And I was like, <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? But I think it's because I'm very vocal in some of the sites. Right. So they knew who I was, but I was like, <laughs> it's like to me, that was just weird. But I get what they're saying is you you've seen this person post stuff and then you're seeing them in the flood. It kind of bridges that gap. We've planned a lot of our vacations around Asian adoptee things. The closest big group that is very organized is in Chicago. They're called CATCH, which is K-A-T-C-H, Korean Adoptees of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So for us, that's a four hour drive. We'll go to a lot of their events. They have organized events. And so I've gotten to know the Chicago CADs very well. Even when our son got married, he got married up in Duluth, Minnesota. Before the wedding, we met with the Duluth group of CADs. And we had, night before the wedding, we had a dinner with them. Like I said, for me, it's been lovely to find groups that are, that understand my background without having to (laughs) explain the background. But what I love about Adoptive Voices is because I've been involved in so many like just Korean adoptee groups. And after a while, that's the only topic that's kind of covered. I appreciate adoptee voices because it's other adoptees, but they're not necessarily Korean adoptees. So I get to hear multiple stories of people that were adopted here many years ago, some more recent. And so that's been kind of refreshing for me to also just have an adoptee group that's not necessarily just Korean adoptees. Thank you so much for saying that. And I appreciate the group for that reason, too, because it is very diverse and mm-hmm. and that's nice. So thank you for that. So yeah. before you read a piece or or I don't know if you're reading more than one, but before you do that, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to share? Oh, my goodness. There's the, the info on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people say... Not- some people say, nope, <laughs> no, we've I, covered no, it I, all or whatever. I, are, I always have something to say. No, um, <laughs> no I just want to say that I've really, truly appreciated this writing group because I am one of those people, yes, I have written all my life, but I'm very much um, somebody that needs a deadline or a reason that I'm writing or otherwise it doesn't kind of spark whatever needs to be sparked. So I'm in the Monday group, which is the emotional playground. I love that one because the prompts are just, just so well done each, each week. And they just kind of spark what I need. And I also realize that like, not every week am I going to 
knock it out of the park. You know what I mean? Cause like, sometimes I'm like, sometimes the prompts I'm like, yeah, I'll just kind of write something. But, mm-hmm. um, but there's been some that have wrote that have really resonated with me and they've been very cathartic. And the last time that that kind of happened was I had gone back to college as an adult. So I was in college kind of at the same time my son was, we didn't go to the same colleges, but, but I was taking, um, a lot of writing classes and so a lot of those were very cathartic for me for things that were happening at the time i was also dealing with yeah my uh my adoption very heavily at that time uh, my korean identity very heavily at that time and then also we had had um, a massive flood that just demolished our city here so we and so my business had gone under with so i was dealing with a lot of trauma and this group has also kind of been what i've needed at this it gave me something to look forward to because there isn't a lot to look forward to with the with the pandemic and and it was in a safe environment i appreciate hearing all the other stories one i'm not going to name people because i don't want to name people that are in the group but (laughs) but there's one that like i am still like i'm just like always at the edge of my seat waiting to hear what the next part of her story is because it just i'm just like wow um every single time so I just appreciate this group and I appreciate you for being part of this group and accepting me into this group. <laughs> oh, we appreciate you so much. You you bring so much each time you're there and we appreciate your feedback. You, you're so supportive of everyone. I think everyone's supportive of everyone, but I am truly glad you're there and that we can, yeah, like we can learn from you. And I'm going to well, be sure I, and tell Sarah that you well, gave these you. compliments because, yeah. today. Yeah, because I, I, you know, like I said, I, I love it. One of the writing groups that I had been a part of before, that was what I loved, is that we would give each other this constructive, not criticism, because it wasn't ever criticism, but it was just constructive thoughts mm-hmm. about, you know, like impressions and stuff. So yeah. I appreciate that, too. So, yeah. So whenever you're ready... You're going to share a piece today? Yeah, I will share a piece. Since I write kind of short ones, I might do, I might do two. But. Oh, good, 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 good. Oh, what a treat. Um, I appreciate it. First one that I'm going to do, I guess I'll do two. I am going to do two. So my style is very conversational or spoken word and things like that. Right. And so this writing prompt was about freedom what does freedom mean as part of your adoption story? Mm-hmm. So I had written a piece called Free Dumb and Dumb is spelled D-U-M-B. How I long for the days where I can be free from the constant questions, free from hearing, where are you from? No, where are you from, from? And free from hearing, wow, you speak English really well. And free from hearing, what kind of Asian are you? And then free from having people guess Chinese, Japanese, and rarely guessing Korean. And when you do say Korean, um, I'd like to be free from having to hear, oh, you're from Korea, North or South, or having people tell me that they knew so-and-so who served over in Korea, like I should know them. Or how I long to be free from people constantly asking me, do you want to meet your real parents? What does that even mean? Just because they gave birth to me doesn't make them parents. And just because they adopted me doesn't make them any less real. I carry the strength from the lessons that my adoptive parents taught me and the DNA that my birth parents gave me. I see both when I look in a mirror. I'd like to be free from the nagging questions when I look in that mirror. Do I look like my mother 
or do I look like someone's great aunt? Did I crack jokes that would remind someone of how uncle so-and-so was? And free from wondering if I will ever turn gray. Free from wondering, did I pass some weird congenital thing on to my son? Free from silly worries about wrinkles and sagging skin and hot flashes and not being a size two and free from, free from, it rhymes with freedom. Free from the past, the present, the future, free from the fear, the failure, the racism. Dr. King spoke of being free at last, but free from what? Oppression, racism, violence, poverty? The past years have shown us that black lives matter and we need to stop Asian hate. And I would like to be free from quotable phrases like that and actually have these things be real. Amanda Gorman said that what just is, isn't always justice. And I would like to be free of that apathy. So I've given myself the freedom to speak freely when I see an injustice. And I am free to tell people that I love them. And I'm free to thank people at the time for something that they did that I appreciate, no matter how small it seems. But one thing I never want to be free from, and I don't want to be considered free dumb, when it comes to freedom, I'm free to be me. Wow. So powerful. You packed a lot in there. That was, yeah. that was so good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's interesting because like, and I don't know, I'm assuming you've, you've talked about this before in your past podcast, but, you know, we write those, we have like, what, an hour and a half to write those. Mm-hmm. It's always impressive to me what people come up with in that hour and a half. So <laughs> Isn't you're like, it? wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like, some of the prompts I could never have imagined where they go Could've with it. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. Just, it just yeah. blows me away. I'm like, we didn't even see that. Like we didn't see it being yeah. that big and people taking it in different directions. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, because like the games one, if you the one where you said if you could if you could design a game about right. your adoption story, what would that be? Some of them I was just like, wow, I would <laughs> yeah, I would never have imagined writing it like that. That's just really cool. And then you know, and mine was mine was a it, it evoked like a childhood game and you know how I felt during that game. But mm-hmm. um I'm, that's but yeah so I debated about reading that one but I decided to read the first one you ever heard me read <laughs> this from the, the first prompt we ever did this is the colors one okay so the warm-up exercise was that you have your crayons or colors or whatever and you I think you take two different colors and one is happy color or an unhappy color. I can't remember right. how you worded it but, yeah yeah and then you write words what you consider a positive color and the other one that you consider a negative color, right? right so right. you take those words and you wrote a piece about it. So my two colors that I chose were red for my happy color and brown for my unhappy color. Okay. Okay. All right. So here we go. Red, driving in the fast red convertible with your girlfriends toward the red dawn down a windy, twisty road at 16 without a care in the world where love is a possibility and you are powerful and laughter and joy are your best friends. And your biggest worry was your strawberry flavored lip gloss and your Hello Kitty sunglasses staying on your head as you approach another car full of unknown boys. Brown, hey chink, yells one of the boys. Your friend looks at you and asks, doesn't that bother you? 
and you ask, doesn't what bother me? And she says, he called you chink, to which you reply, is that supposed to bother me? I don't even know what that means. Chinese, I think she replies. I think it's derogatory towards Chinese people, to which I say, it's okay, I'm not Chinese, and you laugh it off. But inside you're hurt, confused, scared, angry, and you feel stupid and ugly. Don't call me Asian. Don't call me Korean. I am white. I was raised by white people, so I feel white on the inside, even though everyone reminds me I'm Asian on the outside. Red. So you laugh on the outside and you sing at the top of your lungs to the song Little Red Corvette on the radio. Your tears are masked by joy and you are the life of the party. You make the jokes about being Asian before they can make them about you and to you. You are powerful and able to keep at bay the brown. Chaos and true loneliness that is in your heart. No one else really gets that because you are always the popular one, the seeming perfect one, but no one knows the criticism you tell yourself that you need to be perfect so this family accepts that you are truly one of them, even though their son is truly their real child. I have to be perfect, but perfection is a myth, an unreachable goal, even if I'm the smartest, the first, the best. I just can't quite put the puzzle pieces back in the right place. Falling, 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 red, falling in love and first kisses, brown, finding out that what I thought was love was actually yellow fever, tripping and what a trip, running away, running, running, red, fast forward from being 16 to college in your red cap and gown and the day of your New Year's Eve wedding with the red and white rose bouquet and the day you hold your red-faced perfectly flower-lipped baby boy in your arms and you even love the smell of his baby burps. Each birthday of his you make his favorite angel food cake with red strawberries and it seems like life is as perfect as bacon sizzling on a griddle until one day brown. As you're kissing the brown hair on your son's head and you're helping him fill out college applications. And you ask the question, which box do you check for race? And he says, Asian, but it sounds more like the mom. And you are stunned because he seems to, so proud to be checking that box when he doesn't have to check that box. And I always hated checking that box. Okay, not hated, but felt confusion and no clarity from checking that box. And I asked, you consider yourself Asian? To which he replies, yes, of course. I kind of had a cool Asian mom. Red. Thank you, my son, for giving me a reason to be a proud Asian. And then red and brown finally stop being at odds with each other and begin to mix and dance and enmesh. And although you are left with more questions than answers, you are able to open up the reddish brown door and confront the person you see in the mirror. Mm. You know, that's such a beautiful piece. And I feel like my emotions just go up and down. Like I, I get <laughs> sad and then I get, I feel better. And then I, the way you write that, structured it, I'm on a roller coaster of mm -hmm. emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of adoption. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how you ended mm, your son. Mm-hmm. I want to say my mother was a librarian too, so oh. <laughs> we've got some wiring the same when it comes to that. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been a delight. I have so enjoyed this conversation. So I appreciate you taking the time to have it with me. Of course. And thank you so much 
for asking me. I was so proud and honored when you asked me. I was like, oh my goodness, thanks, I would love to. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said yes. <laughs> yes. Jenny told me that she is obsessive about Hello Kitty, loves to hike at the state parks with her husband, Robert, and they recently expanded their two-cat family to five. Toulouse, Pip, Inky, Blinky, and Clyde. I could listen to Jenny read her words every day because she strings them together with such ease as a talented writer. Who knew that when she joined the Adoptive Voices writing group, all of us would get the chance to learn so much about her lived experience because she allows herself to be vulnerable. Her honesty while sharing her early years helps me to better understand what transracial adoptees endure throughout their life. When I think of Jenny being raised in an all-white family with no Korean culture and often the butt of unkind jokes, it's heartbreaking. Yet, she made the empowering decision to connect with the adoption community and lean into healing from multiple traumas. I smile when I think of her son helping her to see her nationality as something to be proud of. As adoptees, we both had mothers with a chosen career in library science, so it's no surprise that we have a shared experience of always having a book in our hand and putting pen to pad as often as possible. Thank you, Jenny, for having this conversation with me. Your kindness, authenticity, humor, and of course, your writing style is a blessing. I feel honored to have met you because your participation each and every time you show up is nothing short of grand. Remember to always look at the show notes of each episode for more information about our guest. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word. Hashtag Adoptee Land. Thank you for being here.